Section 39 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17 Famine, Commercial Trouble, and Foreign Intrigue, Part 2. The government, as it may be supposed, had hard work to do all this time. They had the best intentions toward Ireland and were always indeed announcing that they had found out some new way of dealing with the distress and modifying or withdrawing old plans. They adopted measures from time to time to expend large sums in something like systematic employment for the poor in Ireland. They modified the Irish poor laws. They agreed at length to suspend temporarily the corn laws and the navigation laws, so far as these related to the importation of grain. A tremendous commercial panic causing the fall of great houses, especially in the corn trade all over the country, called for the suspension of the Bank Charter Act of 1844, and the measures of the ministers were for the most part treated considerately and loyally by Sir Robert Peel, but a new opposition had formed itself under the nominal guidance of Lord George Bentinck and the real inspiration of Mr. Disraeli. Lord George Bentinck, brought in a bill to make a grant of sixteen millions to be expended as an advance on the construction and completion of irish railways this proposal was naturally very welcome to many in ireland it had a lavish and showy air about it and lord george bentinck talked grandiosely in his speech about the readiness with which he the saxon would if his measure were carried answer with his head for the loyalty of the irish people but it soon began to appear that the scheme was not so much a question of the Irish people as of certain moneyed classes who might be helped along at the expense of the English and the Irish people. Lord George Bentinck certainly had no other than a direct and single-minded purpose to do good to Ireland, but his measure would have been a failure if it had been carried. It was fairly open in some respects to the criticism of Mr. Roebuck, that it proposed to relieve irish landlordism of its responsibilities at the expense of the british taxpayer the measure was rejected lord george bentinck was able to worry the ministry somewhat effectively when they introduced a measure to reduce gradually the differential duties on sugar for a few years and then replace these duties by a fixed and uniform rate this was in short a proposal to apply the principle of free trade instead of that of protection, to sugar. The protective principle had in this case, however, a certain fascination about it, even for independent minds, for an exceptional protection had been retained by Sir Robert Peel in order to enable the planters in our colonies to compensate themselves for the loss they might suffer in the transition from slavery to free labor lord george bentinck therefore proposed an amendment to the resolutions of the government declaring it unjust and impolitic to reduce the duty on foreign slave-grown sugar as tending to check the advance of production by british free labour and to give a great additional stimulus to slave labour many sincere and independent opponents of slavery lord broom and the house of lords among them were caught by this view of the question lord george and his brilliant lieutenant at one time appeared as if they were likely to carry their point in the commons but it was announced that if the resolutions of the government were defeated ministers would resign and there was no one to take their place 
peel could not return to power and the time was far distant yet when mr disraeli could form a ministry the opposition crumbled away therefore and the government measures were carried lord george bentinck made himself for a while the champion of the west india sugar-producing interest he was a man who threw himself with enormous energy into any work he undertook and he had got up the case of the west india planters with all the enthusiasm that inspired him in his more congenial pursuits as one of the principal men on the turf the alliance between him and mr disraeli is curious the two men one would think could have had absolutely nothing in common mr disraeli knew nothing about horses and racing lord george bentinck could not possibly have understood not to say sympathized with many of the leading ideas of his lieutenant yet bentinck had evidently formed a just estimate of disraeli's political genius and disraeli saw that in bentinck were many of the special qualities which go to make a powerful party leader in england time has amply justified and more than justified bentinck's convictions as to disraeli bentinck's premature death leaves disraeli's estimate of him an untested speculation there were troubles abroad as well as at home for the government almost immediately on their coming into office the project of the spanish marriages concocted between king louis philippe and his minister m guizot disturbed for a time and very seriously the good understanding between england and france it might so far as this country was concerned have had much graver consequences but for the fact that it bore its bitter fruits so soon for the dynasty of louis philippe and helped to put a new ruler on the throne of france it is only as it affected the friendly feeling between this country and france that the question of the spanish marriages has a place in such a work as this but at one time it seemed likely enough to bring about consequences which would link it closely and directly with the history of england the ambition of the french minister and his master was to bring the throne of spain in some way under the direct influence of france such a scheme had again and again been at the heart of french rulers and statesmen and it had always failed at least it had always brought with it jealousy hostility and war louis philippe and his minister were untaught by the lessons of the past the young queen isabella of spain was unmarried and of course a high degree of public anxiety existed in europe as to her choice of a husband no delusion can be more profound or more often exposed than that which inspires ambitious princes and enterprising statesmen to imagine that they can control nations by the influence of dynastic alliances in every european war we see princes closely connected by marriage in arms against each other the great political forces which bring nations into the field of battle are not to be charmed into submission by the rubbing of a princess's wedding-ring but a certain class of statesmen a man of the order who in ordinary life would be called too clever by half is always intriguing about royal marriages as if thus alone he could hold in his hands the destinies of nations in an evil hour for themselves and for their fame louis philippe and his minister believed that they could obtain a virtual ownership of spain by an ingenious marriage scheme there was at one time a project talked of rather than actually entertained of marrying the young queen of spain and her sister to the duc d'aumale 
and the Duc de Montpensier, both sons of Louis-Philippe. But this would have been too daring a venture on the part of the King of the French. Apart from any objections to be entertained by other states, it was certain that England could not view with indifference, as the diplomatic phrase goes, the prospect of a son of the French king occupying the throne of Spain. It may be said that after all it was of little concern to England who married the Queen of Spain. Spain was nothing to us. It would not follow that Spain must be the tool of France because the Spanish queen married a son of the French king, any more than it was certain in a former day that Austria must link herself with the fortunes of the great Napoleon because he had married an Austrian princess. Probably it would have been well if England had concerned herself in no wise with the domestic affairs of Spain, and had allowed Louis-Philippe to spin what ignoble plots he pleased, if the Spanish people themselves had not wit enough to see through, and power enough to counteract them. At a later period, France brought on herself a terrible war and a crushing defeat, because her emperor chose to believe or allowed himself to be persuaded into believing that the security of France would be threatened if a Prussian prince were called to the throne of Spain. The Prussian prince did not ascend that throne, but the war between France and Prussia went on. France was defeated, and after a little the Spanish people themselves got rid of the prince whom they had consented to accept in place of the obnoxious Prussian. If the French emperor had not interfered, it is only too probable that the Prussian prince would have gone to Madrid, reigned there for a few unstable and tremulous months, and then have been quietly sent back to his own country. But at the time of Louis-Philippe's intrigues about the Spanish marriages, the statesmen of England were by no means disposed to take a cool and philosophic view of things. The idea of non-intervention had scarcely come up then, and the English minister who was chiefly concerned in foreign affairs was about the last man in the world to admit that anything could go on in Europe or elsewhere in which England was not entitled to express an opinion and to make her influence felt. The marriage, therefore, of the young Queen of Spain had been long a subject of anxious consideration in the councils of the English government. Louis-Philippe knew very well that he could not venture to marry one of his sons to the young Isabella, but he and his minister devised a scheme for securing to themselves and their policy the same effect in another way. They contrived that the queen and her sister should be married at the same time, the queen to her cousin Don Francisco d'Assis, Duke of Cadiz, and her sister to the Duke de Montpensier, Louis-Philippe's son. There was reason to expect that the queen, if married to Don Francisco, would have no children, and that the wife of Louis-Philippe's son where some of her children would come to the throne of Spain. On the moral guilt of a plot like this it would be superfluous to dwell. Nothing in the history of the perversions of human conscience and judgment can be more extraordinary than the fact that a man like M. Guizot should have been its inspiring influence. It came with a double shock upon the Queen of England and her ministers, because they had every reason to think that Louis-Philippe, had bound himself by a solemn promise to discourage any such policy. When the queen paid her visit to Louis-Philippe at Eu, the king made the most distinct and the most spontaneous promise on the subject both to her majesty and to Lord Aberdeen. The queen's own journal says, The king told Lord Aberdeen as well as me he never would hear of Montpensier's marriage with the Infanta of Spain, which they are in a great fright about in England. 
until it was no longer a political question which would be when the queen is married and has children the king's own defence of himself afterwards in a letter intended to be a reply to one written to his daughter the queen of the belgians by queen victoria admits the fact i shall tell you precisely he says in what consists the deviation on my side simply in my having arranged for the marriage of the duc de montpensier not before the marriage of the queen of spain for she is to be married to the duc de cadiz at the very moment when my son is married to the infanta but before the queen has a child that is the whole deviation nothing more nothing less this was surely deviation enough for the king's promise to justify any charge of bad faith that could be made the whole question was one of succession the objection of england and the other powers was from first to last an objection to any arrangement which might leave the succession to one of louis philippe's children or grandchildren for this reason the king had given his word to queen victoria that he would not hear of his son's marriage with isabella's sister until the difficulty about the succession had been removed by isabella herself being married and having a child such an arrangement was absolutely broken when the king arranged for the marriage of his son to the sister of queen isabella at the same time as isabella's own marriage and when therefore it was not certain that the young queen would have any children the political question the question of succession remained then open as before all the objections that england and other powers had to the marriage of the duc de montpensier stood out as strong as ever it was a question of the birth of a child and no child was born the breach of faith was made infinitely more grave by the fact that in the public opinion of europe louis philippe was set down as having brought about the marriage of the queen of spain with her cousin don francisco in the hope and belief that the union would be barren of issue and that the wife of his son would stand on the next step of the throne the excuse which louis philippe put forward to palliate what he called his deviation from the promise to the queen was not of a nature calculated to allay the ill-feeling which his policy had aroused in england he pleaded in substance that he had reason to believe in an intended piece of treachery on the part of the english government the consequences of which if it were successful would have been injurious to his policy and the discovery of which therefore released him from his promise he had found out as he declared that there was an intention on the part of england to put forward as a candidate for the hand of queen isabella prince leopold of coburg a cousin of prince albert there was so little justification for any such suspicion that it hardly seems possible a man of louis philippe's shrewdness can really have entertained it the english government had always steadfastly declined to give any support whatever to the candidature of this young prince lord aberdeen who was then foreign secretary had always taken his stand on the broad principle that the marriage of the queen of spain was the business of isabella herself and of the spanish people and that so long as that queen and that people were satisfied and the interests of england were in no wise involved the government of queen victoria would interfere in no manner the candidature of prince leopold had been in the first instance a project of the dowager queen of spain christina a woman of intriguing character on whose political probity no great reliance could be placed the english government had in the most decided and practical manner proved 
that they took no share in the plans of queen christina and had no sympathy with them but while the whole negotiations were going on the defeat of sir robert peel's ministry brought lord palmerston into the foreign office in the place of lord aberdeen the very name of palmerston produced on louis philippe and his minister the effect vulgarly said to be wrought on a bull by the display of a red rag louis philippe treasured in bitter memory the unexpected success which palmerston had won from him in regard to turkey and egypt at that time and especially in the court of louis philippe foreign politics were looked upon as the field in which the ministers of great powers contended against each other with brag and trickery and subtle arts of all kinds the plain principles of integrity and truthful dealing did not seem to be regarded as properly belonging to the rules of the game louis philippe probably believed in good faith that the return of lord palmerston to the foreign office must mean the renewed activity of treacherous plans against himself this at least is the only assumption on which we can explain the king's conduct if we do not wish to believe that he put forward excuses and pretexts which were wilful in their falsehood louis philippe seized on some words in a dispatch of lord palmerston's in which the candidature of prince leopold was simply mentioned as a matter of fact declared that these words showed that the english government had at last openly adopted that candidature professed himself relieved from all previous engagements and at once hurried on the marriage between queen isabella and her cousin and that of his own son with isabella's sister on october tenth eighteen forty six the double marriage took place at madrid and on february fifth following m guizot told the french chambers that the spanish marriages constituted the first great thing france had accomplished completely single-handed in europe since eighteen thirty every one knows what a failure this scheme proved so far as the objects of louis philippe and his minister were concerned queen isabella had children montpensier's wife did not come to the throne and the dynasty of louis philippe fell before long its fall undoubtedly hastened by the position of utter isolation and distrust in which it was placed by the scheme of the spanish marriages and the feelings which it provoked in europe the fact with which we have to deal however is that the friendship between england and france from which so many happy results seemed likely to come to europe and the cause of free government was necessarily interrupted it would have been impossible to trust any longer to louis philippe the queen herself entered into a correspondence with his daughter the queen of the belgians in which she expressed in the clearest and the most emphatic manner her opinion of the treachery with which england had been encountered and suggested plainly enough her sense of the moral wrong involved in such ignoble policy the whole transaction is but another and a most striking condemnation of that odious creed for a long time tolerated in statecraft that there is one moral code for private life and another for the world of politics a man who in private affairs should act as louis philippe and m guizot acted would be justly considered infamous it is impossible to suppose that m guizot at least could have so acted in private life m guizot was a protestant of a peculiarly austere type who professed to make religious duty his guide in all things and who doubtless did make it so in all his dealings as a private citizen but it is only too evident 
that he believed the policy of states to allow of other principles than those of christian morality he allowed himself to be governed by the odious delusion that the interests of a state can be advanced and ought to be pursued by means which an ordinary man of decent character would scorn to employ for any object in private life a man of any high principle would not employ such arts in private life to save all his earthly possessions and his life and the lives of his wife and children any one who will take the trouble to think over the whole of this plot for it can be called by no other name over the ignoble object which it had in view the base means by which it was carried out the ruthless disregard for the inclinations the affections the happiness and the morality of its principal victims and will then think of it as carried on in private life in order to come at the reversion of some young and helpless girl's inheritance will perhaps find it hard to understand how the shame can be any the less because the principal plotter was a king and the victims were a queen and a nation End of section thirty nine recording by pamela nagami in encino california march two thousand nineteen end of a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume one by justin mccarthy